prayer. And as we finish singing and we're going to get into the teaching, what we want to do is just uh, take a little bit of time right now to give you some space to just rest. And we know Christmas is, there's a lot of hustle and bustle and there's food to be made and presents to be wrapped and just a lot of movement. And so just for a few minutes, maybe we would just sit here before the Lord and pray. And if you, you don't know um, how to pray, you, you simply just, just talk to Jesus, just talk to God. And so just for a few minutes in your own little kind of space, spend a little time praying. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, some of us uh, on cloud nine from the greatest Christmas ever, and some of us just worn out from the worst Christmas we've ever experienced. And we just come before you and just, just ask that we'd rest in you. And God, would you use your scripture to teach us and to encourage us and to edify us. God, may we hear from you, from your word. May we hear this morning the message that you would have for us. God, may we um, be ready to receive the message of the gospel. God, quiet our hearts and our souls and our minds and all the things that have happened and all the things to be done. And God, just let us sit before you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. How's everybody's Christmas? Was it very merry? All right, five of y'all had a good Christmas, so the rest of y'all will be working through this. Hey, I had a really good Christmas. Um, I I love Christmas, Christmas for us. Christmas Eve uh, always involves a trip to the Waffle House. If you're not at Waffle House on Christmas Eve, it's because you don't love Jesus. Uh, And so my house, we start at Waffle House with with Christmas Eve at Waffle House. And then on Christmas morning, my three-and-a-half-year-old woke up, and uh, my my one-and-a-half-year-old has not slept in in about, you know, three years, you know. Um, she woke us up when she was in the womb. I mean, she just has never slept in. And on Christmas morning, my one-and-a-half-year-old slept in. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But my three-and-a-half-year-old gets up. She runs into the living room, excited as can be. She sees this dollhouse that the elves told me took like a day and a half to build. And it's just like, it's like, three, it's like 15 feet tall. It, it could be a house. Like you could live in it if you want to. And she runs in and she goes, Mommy, Daddy, look, it's the dollhouse from Costco. Are you, honey, are you telling me that Santa shops at Costco? No, dad. Santa built it in his toy, in his, in his toy building house. He just saw me at Costco and he thought I wanted it. And so um, for all of you who doubted that Santa shops at Costco, he does. Um, and as my father-in-law says, if you can't get it at Costco, you don't need it. And so uh, I had a really, been really, really good. I got some golf clubs for Christmas, which have already made me a better golfer. I'm already better Uh, at my hobby than I used to be. Um, We had family come in. My parents came in for a few days and spoiled the grandkids. And my in-laws have come in. In fact, if you hear any heckling, it's because my in-laws are on the front row. And uh, we've notified our security teams where my mother-in-law is sitting. And so that should be pretty safe. Um, But they've come in. We've had family in and out. It has just been an awesome, awesome time. Um, But you know what I'm going to do this afternoon after a really, really good Christmas. I'm going to take a nap because I'm tired, right? It just happens, right? And here's, I also know this too, for every one person who would say, hey, one of the greatest Christmases of my life, there's at least one or two people who would go, that might have been the worst Christmas of my life. I had a blast at Christmas, but I know that some of us in the room, um, this is the first Christmas we've had without grandma or grandpa. That grandma, granddad, they passed away this year, and so this is the first Christmas without the patriarch or the matriarch of the family. And I know that for some of us, this was the Christmas that we thought, this might be the last because a loved one, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a child has been diagnosed with a disease that just seems like it might be uncurable. And so we cherished every minute of it in a little bit of painful agony that could this be the last. And I know that some of us in this room 
Um, this is the first year that you tried to share Christmas without sharing marriage. And you, you've been divorced this year, and for the first time in a, a decade, you woke up, and there was no sound of little kids marching into the living room because you were home alone, and your kids were at your exes. And um, I know some of you this Christmas was not the greatest ever because you got laid off, and, and you, you just didn't have the surplus and the money to to do the things that you've used to do. And so here's, here's what I know. For every single greatest Christmas of my life, there's maybe the worst Christmas of my life. And, and, and what I know about all of it is that um, we all find one thing in common. Whether it was the greatest Christmas ever or the worst Christmas ever, we all have one thing in common. Um, Christmas wears us out. Like we, we are tired and we're weary. And whether it be we're tired from great things or tired from being lonely and and being hurt, it's somewhere in there. We're all tired, and we all need rest. And I love this week between Christmas and New Year's because it's a reminder for me um, to rest. And, and you know, we're, we're resting, and, and our offices are closed this week, and it gives all of us a chance to just kind of breathe and get ready because come New Year's, there's a new service at 1.30, and there's just all these things coming on. It's just a reminder to me, that whether things were the greatest Christmas ever or the worst Christmas ever, or no matter what's coming in the new year, it's just this week, this time to go, I need rest. And I can imagine just by some of the looks I get on your faces right now that some of you are with me. You're, you're going, yeah, rest. I need, I need rest. And here's what I love. Jesus knew this. I mean, like, Jesus was not, is not surprised by our need for rest. And in, in Matthew chapter 11, um, it even says this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, and at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you're like me and you need rest and you hear those verses, man, anytime I've been worn out or anytime I've needed rest, I hear those verses and I just, first of all, I just think it's like so light and airy. Like, Jesus is like, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And, like, I get this, like, Swedish Jesus view in my head of him just with his hair flowing, going, come sit with me, we'll rest. And it's like, it's like if you've ever been stuck underwater, and you come, like, you know, surfing or swimming, and you get caught in a, in a rip current, and you get, finally get up above the water, and it's like, <sighs> you just get that deep breath. And then there's, like, you know, 100 breaths after it, and then your heart stops beating. But there's just that moment where you're just like, oh, I found breath, I found rest. And when I read this passage, for me, it just kind of feels like, man, this, this, is, this feels so light and airy and promising. And it is. And in fact, the promise is that we would come to Jesus and in Jesus, we would find rest. But there's also a little bit of a danger in here. And I want to point this out. There's, there's really two dangers in this passage. One, it says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's a danger in here that we think that to get rest, we have to try harder. Like some of us just to get rest, we work harder to get rest. And what ends up happening is we work harder to get rest. And what do we need? We need more rest because we worked, we tried to work too hard to get the rest. So one danger is to read a passage like this and think, okay, Jesus is telling me to work harder to get rest. And that actually is not what Jesus is telling us at all. The other danger here is that we would read this and go, oh, that's for someone else. Like, I don't really need rest. I'm fine. I'm good. I know my world's a little bit chaotic, but I don't really need rest. And so there's this danger for us to look at this passage and go, I'm glad Jesus promised us rest, but either one, one direction is to go, I'm going to help him get rest for me, or I'm going to ignore my need for rest. And those are two dangers that many of us in this room will find ourselves in when it comes to rest. And so here, here's, here's kind of the, the, if you want the like big idea, bottom line, the thing I'm going to talk about, I'm going to give it to you up front so that you don't have to figure it out at the end. He, here it is. Um, before we can start resting, which every single one of us needs, every single one of us at some level, at some point in life, needs 
rest, right? And if you don't need rest, it's because you're superhuman and, and awesome. Welcome to earth. I don't know what to do with you. You're like an alien, right? And before we start, before we start resting, we have to quit trying to attain rest on our own. It's like countercultural. It doesn't make sense. But for us to rest, for us to start resting, we have to quit trying. We have to quit trying. We have to quit trying to attain it by ourselves. And so we're just going to dig into these verses. And what we're going to see is there's very, there's very clear statements uh, from Jesus of what we're to do to find rest. And I think at the same time, some clear statements of what we need to quit doing to find rest. Here's, here's what I mean. Uh, verse 25. You guys ready? A little Bible study? All right, as long as four of you are, we're going. All right, and at that time, Jesus declared. So let me, let me just pause. At that time, I love in the, in the um, scripture, I love how um, the authors will remind us that this, these five verses are actually a part of, of a bigger context. And so right here at this time, uh, Matthew wrote his letter to the Jews to tell them that the Messiah was coming. He wrote there the gospel. Matthew's gospel is to the Jewish people. And so there's what we call five discourses throughout the book of Matthew, in the second discourse, which is where we're at, this is nerdy, I'm going to get it back to the rest of us in a second, the second discourse, um, he begins to talk specifically to the disciples about what their mission's going to be. And so he pulls the disciples aside, he says, I'm going to give you the power to cast out demons, which the disciples were like, cool, that's awesome, like, does that come with a merit badge? Because that's, that's nifty. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to send you out to do the ministry of the kingdom of heaven, that's awesome. And then Jesus goes, but I need to warn you, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. You're going to get attacked almost daily. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, I don't know how do you receive that one. And um, I'm really not going to be a person of peace, but I'm going to be like a man bringing a sword. It's going to divide you. Some of your old friendships and family, they're just not going to be the same because of the fact that, that you start running after Jesus and the people who aren't running after Jesus go, you're weird. And so he tells the disciples, hey, don't worry, it's a great job, you're going to love it, cast out demons, you're going to be like sheeps among wolves, they're going to try to tear you apart, it's going to be awesome. And then he, um, he, he, he turns from the disciples in the beginning of chapter 11, and he starts talking to the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he, he basically agitates them and basically calls them spoiled little brats. I mean, like, Jesus looks at them and goes, hey, you're like a spoiled little brat, that here I am, the Messiah, right in front of you, and you can't find me. And if you've ever agitated a spoiled little brat, it ain't pretty, right? So Jesus agitates the religious leaders, and then he steps back, and not only is he told the disciples, I'm going to send you into, like, like sheep to a wolf, and then he tells the religious leaders, you're the wolves, so you're like the spoiled little brats. He steps back another level and begins to talk to all the citizens of these Jewish cities, like Capernaum, and he says, hey, you guys would be better off if you, were, if you lived in Sodom. Now, if you know the Old Testament, the Bible story, Sodom was the city that God literally destroyed because of its wickedness. But Jesus says, if I would have gone to Sodom and done the miracles in Sodom that I'm doing here in the Jewish city of Capernaum, Sodom would have surrendered their lives to God and God would have saved the city. And so what happens is Jesus tells the disciples, hey, don't worry, your life's going to be like, like a sheep living among wolves. It's going to be awesome. And then he just ticks off the religious leaders, and then he just comes and attacks the city of Capernaum and denounces in the city and says, hey, it would be better to be a wicked person living in Sodom than to be living in this Jewish city. So at this time, now that Jesus has successfully ticked off everybody that, that's within like a five-mile radius... He says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is fundamental. It's fundamental to finding rest. Here's why. In one quick sentence, Jesus identifies that God is an intimate father who loves his children and is a sovereign, majestic king, Lord of lords, king of kings, God supreme reigning over all. Now, this is fundamental for me and you finding rest. Why? Well, if God is only an intimate father who loves his children and is not sovereign king of all, then God can love us all he wants but can do nothing about our situation. And if God is a sovereign king of all who does what he wills as he wills and yet has no intimacy or concern or love for us, then he does not care about our plight and need for rest. And so Jesus says, I thank you, God, that you are both a loving, intimate father and a, so a sovereign king, ruler of all, who does care about your children's circumstances and is powerful enough to change them. 
who does care about your children's needs for rest and is powerful enough to grant it. Because I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things, these things specifically being the kingdom of heaven, salvation. Because God, I thank you that you've hidden these things, these salvations, the secret of salvation from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now that word little children there does not literally mean three and four-year-olds. Like Jesus did not come and do ministry and only tell three and four-year-olds about salvation. What it means is this, is, is Jesus is saying, God, thank you so much that the arrogant, proud, ego-driven religious leaders who thought just because they attended church and knew all the Bible verses that they were going to get, they get, that they would get a free ride to heaven. Thank you that you didn't show it to them, but thank you that you showed it to the little children, which literally means those who understand their dependence. And isn't that beautiful? Like, that's the gospel message. This morning, I want you to hear this. The gospel message is this. You do not get the secrets of salvation in heaven by being a religious good for goody two-shoes that's just never done anything wrong. You get the secret of salvation when you realize we are utterly dependent upon Jesus and what he did on the cross. Like, that's what, that's what Jesus is praying here. Thank you, God, that we got salvation because of our dependence, not because of our knowledge. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Y'all got that? Did you get that one? Like, no one knows the Father except for the Son, and the Son knows the Father, but only the, only the Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and the Son shown somebody who the Father was. We're good? All right, we'll go home now. Right, okay, let me be honest with you. This is what I do professionally. This is what I do, like, this is what I do for a living. I read verses like this sometime and go, huh? Like the father knows the son and the son knows the father, but nobody knows the son except for the father knows the son and the son only knows the father and the father only knows the son if the son has shown you the father who knows the son. I just read verses like this sometimes and go, I don't even think MC Hammer could have spit that rap out. I don't know what's going on. And you know what? I love verses like this. Here's why. If the complexities of God are so simple that I understand them. God's not big enough to be God, right? If I can fully explain to you how something happens, it ain't complex. Like if I can get it all out and be like, this goes here and this goes here. I don't even know how my car starts. I don't. I, I turn the key and if, a key don't, if it don't start, I'm calling somebody going, I, can, can you make the noise for me? I, I, don't, I don't know any, I don't, I'm not smart enough to ex- explain complex things. And, and I read this verse and it begins to kind of paint this picture of the Trinity. And that the Trinity is, is, is a theological term that means this, that God is three persons in one. That it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and it's really I, honestly, just hard to explain. I had a conversation the other, the other day with somebody, and they were asking about how do you explain the Trinity. And, and they started explaining the Trinity to me like fried chicken. Like there's the bone and the meat and the, and the skin, and it's all chicken, and it's all fried, and it's all good because God is good. And, then, and I, got, I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? I have never tried to take a bite of Jesus. Like I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And then they're like, no, no, how about like talking about, you can talk about the Trinity like I am uh, my wife's husband, I'm my daughter's father, and my, my friend's friend. I'm a husband, a father, and a friend. But you know what? I have never been my wife's father. That's weird, all right? That's just weird, right? I've never been her cousin. I'm not from Alabama. It's just weird, right? And so I, I say all that to say the Trinity is a little bit complex and a little bit mysterious, and I think it's a good thing for two reasons. One, if we can fully explain God, he's not big enough. He's just not big enough. And... The, the mystery of God is intentional because what, is, what are mysteries do? They draw you in because you want to know more answers. You want to know more of the mystery. And so God is mysterious and it's beautiful. And in his mysteriousness, he draws us in to know more of him. And so, like I said, I think there's a few things in here we have to quit doing if we're going to find rest. The first one is this. You and I have to quit trying to outthink God. All right, if you got your, your, your hand out, you need to take some notes. I gave you blanks because it's going to be interactive today. But we need to quit trying to outthink God. God is complex, and that is okay. Like, we cannot outthink God. Let me put it this way. God is not a riddle to be solved. He's a person to know. That some of us approach Jesus, that some of us approach God as if he's a problem to solve, as if he's a riddle to be solved. 
In fact, God is not a problem to be fixed or an ethereal being to be proved. At the core, he is a father deserving of the love of his children. That we've got to quit trying to outthink this, this ability to explain all that God is and start learning to know God for who he is. Now, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm a theologian. I love I love reading about philosophy and theology. I love, we can have conversations about ontological and teleological arguments of creation, to which most of you just said, I think he cussed in Greek. I didn't, but I love, I'm a nerd. At my core, I'm a nerd. I like nerdy things. But the, but the, the truth is this, is that we get wrapped up so often in trying to solve the existence of God, we miss the presence of God. We, we get too busy trying to solve the existence of God and miss the presence of God. And if we're going to really find rest, rest comes in knowing our Father, not knowing about our Father. Rest comes when we are so, when we stop asking, what does this mean? And begin to ask, who are you to me? And so we, we've got to stop outthinking God or trying to. Verse 28, Jesus, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a couple of things here. One, I want you to see this. Jesus promises rest, not removal of the labor. Jesus promised us rest, not removal of the labor. I, I love the, the, the kind of the, the image is, is not someone saying, hey, come to me and I'll take your work for you. It's this image of a hiker hiking the Appalachian Trail, and he's got a pack on, like one of those big old, like, huge packs that like that you can pack everything you need for the trail and a hiker had everything just imagine a hiker hiking up and he's got everything he needs to survive in that pack and as he hikes and hikes the the sun goes down the air begins to chill and he realizes i'm tired and i'm worn out and i, I don't even know if i have enough energy to even set camp and as he comes over the next crest there's a there's a camper who's already set up camp with a fire and the camper says hey hiker come and take your pack off and rest and refine refreshment. Because tomorrow we're going to pick the pack back up and keep going. And what Jesus is saying to us is, hey, come lay your pack down. Come lay your pack down. In fact, a couple weeks ago, at the end of one of the services, I was, I was down front talking and praying and hanging out and getting to, getting to know, getting to meet some of our people who go to church here. And a lady said, I love this church because for me, every week I can come in and before I even come in the glass doors, I stop and I pray and I lay everything down. I, I, I lay my baggage down. I lay everything I've got at my to-do list down. And then I can come in and I get for an hour and a half, I just get to worship Jesus. And when I leave, the stuff's still there. My stuff's still there. But it's, somehow it's lighter and it's easier to carry. And that's just one of the reasons why we gather to worship. It's why when we were singing a little while ago, you had some people next to you with their hands up. They didn't have a question, right? Their question's already been answered. And so they were, they were telling God, they were worshiping, they were singing to Jesus, going, thank you, thank you. We'll carry your name because you're carrying us. We could lay our baggage down and get refueled and refreshed. It's why it's so important to gather as believers, to go, God, it is, it is you who gives us rest. You see, the thing about the pack, the reason that our pack, we don't lose our pack, the reason we lay it down and pick it back up is because God designed you and I to work. Like we were designed to work. So as as I'm preaching this, if you're going, I'm not tired at all, and you're not working, it's because you're you're not being obedient. In fact, I'd I'd put it this way. um, Actually, we'll get to that in a second. But the, the, the pack that we're designed to work, We're designed to work. We were designed to carry a load. So we lay the pack down and we pick the pack back up. The second thing we have to quit doing is this. We have to quit idolizing busyness. Like our culture idolizes busyness. You know how I know? It's like a badge of honor. Like if you were to go find somebody you hadn't seen in a while and they'll go, what's new with you? What do you tell them? Well, I've been so busy. And it's not a complaint. It's a declaration of your value. I have been so busy. Here's how I know it. If you were to call somebody that you considered more important than you today, right, what would you start the phone call with? Hey, I know you've been busy, but can I have a few minutes of your time? You see, Jesus in this verse does not tell, he does not say, come to me. I can't believe you're working and heavy laden. I can't believe you're busy. He goes, hey, come to me. You should be busy. You should be laboring. You should be heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. See, the problem with our complaints of busyness is that often they tend to just be idolatrous declarations of our displaced value. 
Now, an idol is this. An idol simply is anything besides Jesus that becomes more important than Jesus in your life. That you put your value in, that you find your identity in. In our culture, busyness is, a value, is, a, is an idol. And I hate, I'll just tell you this, I hate when people go, hey, Pastor Ryan, I know you're busy, but could I get a few minutes of your time? I'd love to talk to you. It bothers me for two reasons. One, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you know my job description, but as a pastor, I'm, part of my job description is to shepherd the, the people. So when you say, hey, I know you're busy working, but could you spend some time with me? I'm like, hold on, that's inside of my box. So it's not, it's not like you're asking me to do something I'm not called to do. I love meeting and greeting. But the other reason why it just irks me and bothers me is because I know, I know busyness is an idol for me. I know I don't sit still well because when I'm sitting still, I feel like, I don't have any value. And busyness is a value to me because it validates in me this, this, this insecurity that I'm important. And I think a lot of us do that. Like we have taken busyness and we've made it an idol. See, the truth is this, is we are meant to work, but we're not meant to be identified by our work. Like you and I are not meant to be identified by what we do for a living. We're actually supposed to do what we do for a living out of gratitude and the fact that Christ created us to work and do all things for his glory. Weariness or tiredness is two things. First of all, it is a byproduct of obedience. Did you you think about that? When we get weary and we get tired, it's a byproduct of us doing what we were called to do. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, God creates the heaven and earth. And when he creates Adam and Eve, he tells Adam to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and rule or have dominion over it. That Adam, that all of us were created and we were told that God commanded us to work and subdue and take whatever he's given us and make it better. And so when, when we get tired, weariness is really a byproduct. It is a byproduct that we are working or we are being obedient. It's why if you're a 25-year-old male and you still have your parents' house and you sit on their couch and do nothing, you're not tired because you're not doing anything. So get off the couch, get a job, get tired. Weariness is a byproduct of our obedience and at the same time a reminder of our dependency. See, I think weariness, I think God put in our hearts and in our souls I think he wired us in such a way that we would grow tired. Because every time we grow tired, it reminds us that we need, we are dependent on him. In fact, if you look at Genesis and the the cycle in which God created the heavens and the earth, he created us to work in six days and rest for one, to take Sabbath and the rest. And when we don't find rest for our souls, we get tired and weary and God goes, you need me, don't forget it. So we've got to quit idolizing busyness. It's okay to work hard, but, but that's not who we are. That's not how we're identified. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Now, I tell you a little bit about a yoke. A yoke is a farming tool that was used, back, well, used a lot, but back in the first century, it was a farming tool. It was shaped kind of like, a, you know, when you draw seagulls, when you draw like pictures for your, kid, for your kids or grandkids, and you're like, hey, it's a seagull. No, it's just a really awful lowercase m. But you know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, that's a bird. It was kind of shaped like that, had two little humps, and it would sit over the back, over the shoulder blades of two oxen, and it would be tied back to a plow, and when the oxen pulled forward, they would pull the yoke, and the yoke would pull the plow, making the plowing uh, a lot easier because the two oxen would share the load of the heavy plow. Now, the Jewish rabbis took this concept of a yoke and began to use it to help people uh, tie themselves to their teaching. And so the rabbis would teach, and they would have a yoke that would tie them to the Torah or to the Old Testament, the laws. And so different rabbis would stress different parts of the Old Testament laws, and their teaching would become known as their yoke. And followers of these rabbis would tie themselves to that yoke. So Jesus says, all right, that's a great analogy. Jesus says, look, tie yourself to me. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Because Jesus' yoke was going to tie ties us to the cross, not to the law. So when we tie ourselves to the law, we cannot fulfill it. But Jesus says, tie yourself to the cross, and the cross will fulfill it for you. Because here's the cool thing. If one ox is really strong and one ox is really weak, they work together, and they both get credit for pulling the plow. And so when we look at it, at what Jesus is saying, he is righteous and holy and pure, and we are in great desperate need. And because of first tying ourselves or surrendering our lives to Jesus and what he did on the cross, we get the credit and the righteousness that he earned. It's beautiful. He says, take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me. All right, in your notes or in your Bible or on your phone, don't actually do this with ink, but I want you to underline it. Don't actually underline it with ink on your phone, but everywhere else, I want you to underline, learn from me, right? We're a movement for all people, so I got to slow down sometimes and tell people, don't write on your phone, all right? A move, learn from me. I want you to underline that. I want you to circle the word from. I want you to put a little star out beside it, all right? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The third thing we have to do, to, we have to quit in order to, to quit this in order to find rest is this. We have to quit treating Jesus like a subject matter. We have to quit treating Jesus like a subject matter. We have to quit pursuing Jesus with just an academic mindset. Here's what I mean. The number one obstacle to intimacy with Jesus is to learn about Jesus, but never learn from Jesus. The number one obstacle to intimacy with Jesus, which is what we all long for, whether we articulate it or not, we all long for it. Why? Because intimacy with Jesus is the only way we find fulfillment, satisfaction. It's the only way what we were created to do actually happens in our life. We can try hundreds of other things and hundreds of other avenues, but until we find intimacy with Jesus, we are not fully who we were created to be. And so on some level, whether articulated or not, we all long to have intimacy with Jesus, to be his bride. But the number one obstacle is that we would learn about him and never learn from him. You see the difference there? I can take this Bible, and this is, a, this is a trap for me. I can take this Bible and just read and get smarter and learn more and more and more about Jesus, but never actually engage the heart of Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the word. And if this is the living and active word, as I read it and as I pray, I can either get smarter and cognitively grow, or my heart can fall more in love with Jesus. And it's a danger. And so the number one obstacle to intimacy with Jesus is that we would just cognitively get learn more and more and more and get to know more and more about Jesus. And, and we'd have great church attendance and great, we'd read a lot of devotional and quiet times, and yet we would never, ever actually experience the heart of Jesus. It's important, and here's why. Because rest is not found in knowledge. Rest is found in security. Rest is not found in knowledge. It's found in security. If my three-year-old goes to bed tonight and wakes up crying, and I go in her room, and she says, Dad, there's a monster in my closet. It does her no good for me to walk rationally and logically. One, she's a woman, and two, she's three. Rationally and logically, it does me no good to walk her through why there can't be a monster in her closet. There's no such thing as monsters. There's no room in your closet. There's, 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 I could just go through logically, rationally, why there is no such thing as a monster in the closet. And when I walk out of the room, you know what she does? She'll cry. Why? Rest is not found in knowledge. Rest is found in security. So I can walk in there, I can pick her up in my arms, I can turn my flashlight on and show her there's nothing in this closet, and if there is anything in this closet, Dad's 9 millimeter is loaded. We're not afraid. And I lay her back down in the bed, and I tuck her in, and I pray for her, and we, 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 we just pray some, some scripture verses over, <clears throat> and I hold her, and I get her back to sleep. She doesn't wake up till morning. Why? Rest is found in security. The reason why some of us have shown up a lot to church and never felt rest is because we, we know more about God, but we have never surrendered to his lordship. We've never just said, God, I, I want to know you. I don't, all the religious do's and don'ts aren't important. I want to know you. Jesus is not a subject matter. He's a person. He's a savior. And until we, until we start treating him like a savior, we'll miss rest. It goes on, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, Jesus says, you can, you can trust me, I'm humble. Jesus says, I'm humble. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The last thing we have to quit is this. We have to quit carrying loads that, that we weren't designed to carry. You have to quit carrying loads you were not designed to carry. <clears throat> Jesus says this. He says, my yoke is easy. In other words, Jesus says, you're going to get tied to something. You're going to work for something. It would make more sense to tie yourself to the cross than to tie yourself to anything in this world. And Jesus says, my burden is light. 
Like you and I are designed to put a pack on and carry stuff through life. If you're a husband, then you have been, you have been given the responsibility to carry the weight of your family, of your wife, of your children. If you're a mom, you've been given the weight to carry of raising your children. If you're an employee, if you're a boss, you've been given weight of ethics and hard work. Wherever you're at in life, all of us have been given certain burdens to carry that God has given us everything we need to carry them. But we have to stop carrying the burdens that we weren't, we weren't designed to carry. In other words, we all have past hurts. We all, we've, our families hurt us, our friends have hurt us. I mean, we could just go around the room and let everybody name a couple of past hurts and everybody would, would need more than five minutes to tell everything of their past that hurt them. But what we do, we, it's, it's there, it's real. But what many of us do is we take those past hurts and we just put them in our pack and make our pack a little heavier. And we have current expectations that, that we think that, that there's expectations that we have of ourselves, expectations that our spouse have of us, expectations that our family has of us, expectations that culture has of us. We just take these current expectations, which like 90% of them are unrealistic and unaccomplishable, and we just take those unrealistic expectations and we just stuff them in our pack. And then we've got all these future anxieties, mainly because our past hurts have become current expectations that have just made us afraid of the future. And so we take those future anxieties and we put them in, and here's what happens. We begin to carry this overweight pack, and the only thing that past hurts, current expectations, and future anxieties can do for me and you is wear our souls out called burnout. We begin to experience burnout when we start carrying loads that we were not designed to carry. Your soul needing rest is not an indicator to strive harder. You need to hear that. Your soul needing rest is not an indicator to strive harder. It's an invitation to come find refreshment and renewal. Your soul being tired and worn out is not an invitation for you to just try a little harder. Trying a little harder is what got you to the spot where your soul is about to burn out. It's an invitation that we would come to Jesus, to his yoke, to his burden, to his rest, and find refreshment and renewal. And I get it. I got two kids under three. Right? I can't tell you how many times my wife and I look at each other and go, if we can just make it through the terrible twos, the terrible threes, and the, the only F word I can think of, I can't stay on, on stage, fours. Um, right, if we can just make it through those years, we can get them all out of diapers, we can get them in school. If we can just make it a few more years, we can, we can survive this thing. Any parents with me? Here's the problem. God did not wire me to survive. God did not wire you to survive. And yet there's times when our soul needs rest and we just strive harder. We try to just survive it and will ourselves through it. Weariness is a gift of mercy from God that calls our hearts back to our creators. When my kids are wearing me out, it is a blessing from the Lord to remind me of my dependence on Him. Not an invitation to just muster up a little more willpower. It'll burn me out. And you've got your own things that that are just going to burn you out. We all do. We were not designed to survive life. We were designed to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. We were designed to be sons and daughters of, of a living, true God. And in that, we were designed to thrive in life, not survive it. Here's the point, and this is going to be super simple, but I hope maybe profound for us in the next few weeks is this, is rest is found in Jesus alone. It's not found in trying to outthink God. It's not, trying, it's not found in trying to rationalize your busyness. It's not, it's not found in trying to learn more about Jesus. It's not found in carrying loads you can't carry. It's not found in your religiosity. It's not found in your goodness. It's not found in anything else. It's only found in Jesus. Now, I'm a word picture guy, and I haven't drawn on a board in like a month, so we got to do this. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, here, here's how I want to help you understand this. So there's a moment in all of our lives whether on this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity, where we become aware of our need for salvation. The Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, and we have an opportunity now to to bow our knees and confess the lordship of Jesus, or after our death, it'll be demanded of us. And so what happens at the moment of salvation, or the moment of understanding our need for salvation, two things happen. First of all, there is, um, we have an awareness of God's 
holiness. Okay? The second thing we realize is man's depravity. You've got to wait for this one. This is a long word. All right, I'm back. Here we go. So man, so we, get, we, get, uh, we become aware of God's holiness, right? God's holiness doesn't grow. We just become more and more aware of it. God's as holy as holy will ever be. But over time, we become more and more aware of God's holiness. And as we become more and more aware of God's holiness, there's a direct correlation that we become more and more aware of our depravity, of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, of our wretchedness, right? And in this gap... There is something has to fill this gap, and either one or two things fills this gap. Either God's wrath and eternal separation from him, uh, we call that hell, or uh, God's grace, we are, the gap is filled by the cross. And so the cross really is a picture of substitutionary atonement, that we deserve wrath, and yet the cross takes our wrath and provides us a way to commune or dwell with God. Now, as we grow in our faith, we become more and more aware of God's holiness. And what we realize is that every time God, we realize God is as holy as he really is, we realize the gap even more. So it starts here. We realize, oh, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And it grows because we begin to realize, oh, wait, God has never had a lustful thought. And every guy goes in here, well, I'm worse than I thought I was, right? And, and we realize God has never had a materialistic envy of what other people got for Christmas. And we realize, oh, I am wretched. And it grows and grows and grows. And the beautiful part is that the goal uh, of our growth or of our sanctification is that the cross actually continues to cover the gap. And what happens is our awareness of our depravity and our need for Jesus and what he does on the cross just grows. And our awareness of the cross grows and grows and grows. It's why every week when you show up, we're preaching about the gospel, we're preaching about the cross, because if our awareness of God's holiness grows, our need for the cross grows. And the cross never, ever, ever underdelivers what Christ did on it. Now, I, I show that to you because I need you to understand this. The cross is supposed to grow and our view of the cross is supposed to grow as our view of our depravity and God's holiness grows. The problem is, is that if the cross does not grow and it just stays the same, our view of the cross doesn't grow and it stays the same, then what we have to do is fill these gaps. And we fill it in one way or the other. Either we perform or we pretend. And here's how we do it. We begin to perform. We realize, yes, Jesus, I need a savior, and yes, the cross saved me, what Jesus did on the cross saved me, but we begin to perform and act as if God needs us to do something to keep him happy with us. See, the truth is, is that the cross has already made us one and made us united with God, and yet we perform and we begin to kind of bank on our attendance at church, we begin to bank on how much did we tithe, we begin to bank on how many mission trips we've been on, and instead of those things being a response for what God has done, we begin to do those things and perform those things in order to try to get God to be happy with us. The other thing we do is we try to pretend that our depravity is not as bad as it is. Some people would call this, we try to cheapen grace. This will say things like, I know I was saved from, you know, from, 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 from being an alcoholic. I know I was saved from drinking and being drunk. But I'm only drinking a few, and there's only a few times that I'm getting drunk now, and so it's not that big of a deal. Look, anytime we sin, it's a big enough deal to put Christ on the cross. Anytime. And we begin to go, I know that I used to have this past where there was, I, I, would, I, just, I was angry, and I'm not as angry as I used to be. I, I don't sleep around as much as I used to be. I'm not as bitter as I used to be. I'm not as selfish as I used to be. I'm not as, and we just begin to kind of rationalize. I'm not as something as I used to be. We begin to defend our actions. And really what we're doing is we're trying to pretend as if our sin is not as big of a deal as it is. Here's the problem. We were designed for the cross to give us rest. And when we begin to perform, and when we begin to pretend, we will wear our souls out. When we tie our yoke to performance, it's good as long as we're performing well, but what happens when we don't perform well? What happens when we slip up in a moment of anger, we, we say something to someone we don't mean to say? We feel devastated because we've tied our yoke to performing. 
And then pretending, what happens when we pretend like things aren't really as bad as they are? Well, over time, sin has consequences, and those consequences will wear our souls out. And so we tie ourselves to performance, or we tie ourselves to pretense, and what happens over and over and over again is that we are right back where we started. We need the cross. So, so what do I do? How, what do I do if I've tied myself to performance or pretending? Well, let's dig a little deeper into verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What are you and I supposed to do? Take his yoke. Just receive the work of the cross. It's not about performing. It's not about pretending. It's about receiving, that we receive what he did on the cross. We learn from Jesus and his humility. And then underline this in your notes. You will find rest. You will find rest. I love this verb form. Like I said, I'm a nerd. The Greek, it is a future, active, indicative. In other words, it is a declaration of what's to be. You see, Jesus doesn't say, hey, come to me and and, and take my yoke and rest and, and learn from me. And you might find some rest. You might find some relief. He declares it. Jesus says, if you would come to him, if you'd quit trying to attain rest on your own and start trying to find rest in the one who gives it to us freely, if we would do that, then it is a declaration of what's to be, that we would find rest, that we would find relief from our trouble, from our anxiety, that we would find an interruption of the storm. I love it. It's the picture of like the eye of the storm and the storm's all around and, and the storm encompasses us and engulfs us and we're in the middle of it. And yet Jesus says, come to him and we'll, it'll be like the eye of the storm where everything will just calm. That he is the peace that passes all understanding. That rest comes when we just receive it from Jesus. Now, here's the deal. I, I'm a teacher, so I like to, at this point, go, now, here's three action steps. Here's three things to do. Here's three steps to find peace and find rest. I think that's more dangerous than it's helpful. Here's why. If you are a uh, performer, you know what happens when I give you three steps? You now have a new metrics by which to judge whether or not you're doing good. And you just start performing on the steps that I'm trying to give you to stop performing. And so you just get worn out. You work harder. You have more metrics to either decide whether, you're well, whether or not you're performing well or performing bad. And so if I give the performers in this room three steps, they will become your Lord by the end of the week. And if I give you pretenders three steps, you know what will happen? You'll look at the three steps and go, it ain't that bad. It ain't worth that. And you'll say that, and then you'll go home, and you will yell things at your husband, at your wife, at your kids that you can't take back. And you'll say, I'm fine, I don't need rest, but then you will just, you'll spend all of your time this Christmas break worrying about work, that you've missed Christmas morning with your kids because your iPhone was in your hand and you were checking emails. And you say, I'm fine, it's really not as bad as it is, but you're so tired, you can't get rest from your mind. And what started years ago just as a pill or a bottle to kind of numb the chaos around you has now become such an addiction that you just go back to it over and over again. And so if I gave you three steps, you'd be like, it ain't that big of a deal. But it is. It is. Some of you have gotten so worn out that you have just moved into slothness. You're just a sloth. You just don't do anything. You're lazy. And here's the truth, the cross, Christ died on the cross that we would not have to perform anymore, that we wouldn't have to pretend that everything is all right. And it's a trap for both of us to to go, I need rest, and how do I get rest? And we try to find rest by working harder and we're more tired. Or we try to find rest by pretending that things aren't as bad as they are, and, and all the same time, the things we're trying to downplay are eating our soul away. And we can't find rest. So I don't have three action steps. I just have some encouragement for you. Here's my encouragement. And here is this. Is is we would start, that you would start finding rest. That we'd first, we'd start with some honesty. That we would start finding rest with honesty. You see, if you're a performer, you, you know you know where you're performing because as I began to talk about your attendance or about how good of a husband or how good of a father you are, your chest kind of bows up and you get proud because you're finding your identity and your performance. 
And if you're a pretender, and I began to talk about the world that you're pretending is not out of, that's not out of control, as you pretend like your world's not, have some chaos to it, you, you get real defensive. Like when I start encroaching on what you're pretending is not a big deal. And so it starts with this, honesty. Like first and foremost with the Lord. Like honesty with God. Hey, here's a beautiful thing. He already knows and he loves you anyway. Like he already knows how jacked up you are and he loves you anyway. It starts there. To surrender to him to go, God, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't perform and I can't pretend. It also includes with your spouse and your family and your best, deepest friends. To be honest with them. In fact, James says this, if you confess your sins one to another, you might be healed. Why? Because there's something about honesty that just releases us. To just be honest with the Lord and honest with the people around us that releases us. Not only should we start resting with honesty, but we need to start resting with humility. Here's the reason why most of us don't ever attain rest or don't ever get rest. It it takes humility to get it. Because rest is received, not achieved. You can achieve a simpler calendar. You can achieve an accomplished to-do list. You can achieve a really well thought out and paid for vacation. But you do not achieve rest. You receive it. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And so some of us are missing rest because we're coming to Jesus trying to show him what we've done to create our rest. And he's going, you don't get it. Like you don't get that rest only comes when we receive it. So we have honesty, honesty about where we need rest, honesty about where we're performing, honesty about where we're pretending. We come, we start resting with humility. You want some humility? Ask your spouse or your best friend, hey, do you think I'm at rest? It'll tell you a lot. And then when we come with honesty, when we come with humility, then we should come with hope. We should come with will hope. Jesus doesn't say you ought to find rest if you come to me honest and humble. He says you will find hope. And so what I know is that there are many of us who have been performing and performing and performing and religion has left us worn out and tired and empty and just jaded. And God, your heavenly father this morning is saying, hey, just won't you come and be honest and confess it. And there's some of us who've been pretending that things are okay. They blow up occasionally, but we just get it all back under the rug and everything's fine. And we've been performing and we've been pretending. And the whole time Jesus has been declaring, stop and receive rest. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop performing. Stop pretending and receive rest. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you, and God, even in this moment, I pray you would break our hearts, that we would come flooding to these altars, and at these altars, we would just begin to pray and declare with honesty that we have been trying to create and attain our own rest, and with humility, we would just invite you to give us rest. It's not an action step, a to-do list. It's just a vulnerability before you, that we would come with our burdens and our work and our heaviness, and, and, and we would just come and lay them down before you. And God, we openly admit that we need healing. And so God, with your presence, would you heal us as we confess our sins one to another, as we come and pray, as we sing and declare your praises, God, would you heal us? God, we are tired and we need you. God, it's in your precious and your holy name we pray. Amen.